You are listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, broadcasting from Cortez Island, B.C. I'm Dee Clark, and this is Cortez Currents, what's current on Cortez and beyond. Please be aware that the views and opinions heard on this show are not necessarily those of Cortez Community Radio Society, its board, its staff, or its membership. So I am very happy to be interviewing Ann Jakovich and Sam Gibb about their life as market farmers on Cortez Island. So maybe you guys can tell me a little bit about where you live and where you farm. Okay, we live at Blue Jay Lake Farm in a community of people. And on this land, we rent a house and we rent about a third of an acre of land to do our farming on. That's Henry and Margaret Fisher's place. Yes, Henry and Margaret have been living on this land and making the farm since about 1990. They raised their children here, go up the farm, and as they've got older and diversified the things that they do, they don't do as much farming as they used to, as much food production. And so that's where we have slotted in to growing food on the land that used to be farmed by them. Okay, so they found basically a couple of younger farmers to rent from them and keep that land under cultivation? Yes, we've taken over land that used to be farmed by them and otherwise would have just been sitting as pasture. Was this land farmed earlier by earlier homesteaders in the valley? Or is this pasture that Henry and Margaret converted to farmland? The history of Green Valley is one of a, a couple of families, the Barrett family, after which the uh, Barrett's Lake and Barrett's Creek get their name. As far as I know, were the first settlers to farm here. And I imagine they did a lot of the clearing and very, very hard work of making the land suitable for agriculture. I think a lot of the valley floor land would have just been swamp and marsh. Mm. And so there would have been some ditching and draining and stump pulling. And rock picking. Rock and, picking, and, yeah. which continues to this day. But We felt quite lucky to be able to show up and have the setup mostly ready for us to to step into. A field know. that was already cleared, already well, rock picked. The field wasn't cleared, but it it had been farmed six years previous and had been sitting in pasture for six years. So oh, nice. um, we were, Henry went and, and plowed that area for us and we went through and picked out a few rocks and mostly our first year was spent picking out a lot of thistles. <laughs> that was the main actually challenge that we had with that field, um, as well as a few bug problems the first year. But just in general, you know, living somewhere where Henry has a tractor, has tools, has all the stuff that we can borrow. Um, it meant our first year investment was quite low, which was really helpful for us to kind of get going with very little money and just kind of see, see where we could take it without throwing a huge amount of money into tractors and tailors and all the rest of it. So essentially your agreement with your landlord here, who's mm -hmm. actually kind of a friend as well, is... Um, and surrogate grandpa. ...that uh, you're part rent, part barter. And yes. We do quite a bit of sharing with Henry and Margaret within our farming setup. For example, we don't have anywhere to start our early starts, like shallots and kale and parsley, so we do that in their house and move them down to a glass house that is attached to their house. And all our early stuff happens over there. And in trade, we take care of a lot of their starts. 
So the produce of your farm is yours to sell, to market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing. And so, this is your main livelihood? This is what you're doing for a living at the moment? Almost entirely. Yeah. And Henry and Margaret still grow a lot of food um, for them and their woofers that stay with them. But they've actually cut back even since we've been here in the years. They used to sell a bit more to the co-op and now I think you know, they see us selling so much and maybe it felt a bit weird to be in some sort of competition mm -hmm. that they've cut back kind of what they, even what they sell to the co-op and have a couple of their sections now just in, in cover crop in the summer rather than growing, trying to grow everything. And you have um, what area under cultivation right now? Our main growing area is one quarter of acre that we fenced and that we keep in permanent beds. On top of that, there's a polytunnel where Anne grows all of the plants are like a bit more heat. It's a 20 by 60 or something. Yeah. And there's our backyard behind our house, which we grow mostly things for our, our own kitchen, but also some crops that require close attention. And depending how much extra work we feel like doing on a given year, we may take a little extra land from somewhere on the farm to grow a crop or two. Usually Sometimes corn. Corn. Yeah. So usually totals under half an acre, usually around a third. Mm -hmm. And you're able to make a living off of your third to a half of an acre yep. using organic methods? Yeah. Using or very carefully planned and efficiently organized organic methods. One of the main benefits of being on this farm is that there's cows here who produce manure. And so part of our agreement with living here is caretaking the cows and doing two milking shifts a week. And... In return, we get milk, but we also get manure, which is the, the gold for us. I mean, milk we could buy at the store. It's also great to get milk, and we use it, and we make yogurt and things and cheeses, but the manure having to have that resource off-island would be a huge expense for us bringing it on. So the fact that it's here, and, and you know, Sam uses the quad trailer and brings it to our field and manures all our, all our beds is, uh, yeah. It's the biggest benefit, actually, to being here. It's difficult to do organic farming without animals in the mix. Yeah. If not on your own farm, then on someone else's farm somewhere, yeah. and then you have to truck it in. Some people do it with green manures, but we haven't gone down that route. And it's, it's hard to beat animal manure. It's hard to beat animal manure, and you're spending a lot of money on seed in that um, circumstance, whereas we're... I mean, we don't spend money on the manure, but we put the work and time in as far as caretaking the animals year-round. So that's that's the trade-off. And, and someone does have to spend money on the on the various inputs for the cows, like yeah. feed and and extra hay, and everything else that they need. That uh, someone being Henry that someone has to do, <laughs> and yeah. for him, that's his uh, selling the beef is what pays for him to keep the cows. Mm -hmm. Him keeping the cows is what pays for us to get the manure, mm -hmm. and us getting mm -hmm. the manure is what pays for us to grow the vegetables. So mm -hmm. it's all interconnected somehow. It's interconnected, and us growing the vegetables gives Henry Farm status. So it's, it's a big cycle, really. <laughs> and how long have you been doing this now? We're entering our sixth season of farming. So we've done five full seasons, and now this is year six. And did you have farming experience before you came here? Kind of. I ran a community garden in Glasgow for two years and did a master's thesis on community gardening. Focus, focusing on kind of the challenges and benefits of community gardening in a city. And so running that was growing food, but also working with a lot of volunteers and dealing with fundraising and a lot of different stuff. So I wasn't selling the food on. We were just kind of eating and spreading the food around the community. And so after that, I decided I, I really like the growing food part. I'm not super keen on the managing volunteers part. 
Um, and so Sam and I decided to move to Vancouver from Scotland. And I kind of tried to get into the same type of work of community gardening, but it's, it was super competitive there. I ended up landscaping, Sam bike mechanic for about a year and a half until we'd said, okay, well, let's, let's have a go at the, at the farming and do an apprenticeship, uh, a soil apprenticeship with a farm and, and see, see how we get on. So we ended up going to Kamloops to a community farm there for eight months, uh, Golden Ears. Learned a lot on that plot of land. They were What we learned was that we really enjoyed the life and the work and the idea of it and the lifestyle. And we also learned how we would do it differently if left to our own devices. And we felt called to, to do it on our own, just to see as a team what we could do on a very small amount of land without... Um, Trying to communicate and share and everything with with like five or six or seven or eight other other people or couples. So that was I think where we got to at the end of yeah. that eight months. And also this farm it wasn't a huge farm, but they had a lot of land and they felt compelled to grow a lot of stuff and cover the whole land. And we saw how stretched they were and how how they struggled to keep everything under control, especially weeds, because it was an organic farm. And so they were doing so much desperate weeding work and it was always too late and it was always taking up everyone's time. And it was always a crisis. It was always yes, in crisis. Was firefighting. And mm -hmm. so that would have been actually one of the reasons why we decided getting into it, that we didn't want to Grow farm, two a, acres of farm a large plot of land. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. decided we wanted to do what we could manage as two people. So were you inspired by any particular example of small plot farming? I mean, did you have a, a book or a person or a family that you met that was very inspiring or was this I just guess reading Jean Martin, he's a, a Quebec farmer who's quite famous in organic farming circles for farming on an acre and a half and making $100,000 on this 100 wow. acre and a half. Yeah, so I'm trying to figure out if that's gross or... Um, if that's how many actual vegetables he sells. But anyway, he makes a ridiculous amount of money on a very small amount of land, but also puts in way more work than we want to. And he has employees and, you know, so he, he's doing it on a larger scale than we are, but his methods and, and how he's getting the most out of a small amount of land was quite inspiring for us. And that's something that we found kind of year on year here is each year we're figuring out how to do it better on the same amount of land and we're not feeling the need to go, oh, you know, Henry's offered us more land to open up. We haven't gone down that route mm -hmm. yet because, you know, we're making more money year on year on year and that will plateau at some point, but that's kind of, kind of inspiring for us to be able to grow better rather than, mm -hmm. than bigger. So you, you haven't nearly reached diminishing returns yet? No. You're still improving your technique and improving your soil. And... Yeah, and I mean, it, every year there's some crop that doesn't go well, right? So if all the crops go well in one season, I can only imagine how great it's going to be. Or we tweak something and try something and it doesn't work for that crop. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll go back to what was actually working well the year before. Plus, I'm trying this, this, and this with the, with the peas or with the eggplant or with the... Yeah, so there's, it, there's so much to learn. And when you're growing vegetables... Certain vegetables, for example, like peas, I've only grown them six times, five times, right? So that's actually not that many <laughs> to, to, as far as doing something over and over and over again. So each year is kind of a big learning curve. And then Margaret gives, and Henry give us a lot of advice too, which is super helpful. So it sounds like one piece of advice you have for the aspiring market gardener or farmer is don't overplant, don't get ambitious and plant more area than you can maintain or that it becomes a, a sort of a misery to maintain it. 
it's tough when you're starting out for the first time or, or even in a new place or a new market is you don't really know how much to plant. You have to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And the so the way. temptation is to plant as much as you can. And it's very difficult to resist that temptation. I think one of the, I mean, we're leasing land here and Henry is quite tidy and on top of his plots as far as weeds and letting weeds go to seed, more or less. So we felt compelled to, to do the same. You know, it would would have felt strange for us to have like all these weeds going to seed and two acres of land that we can't manage. Um, felt good to start small and figure out what we could manage and and not, you know, piss Henry off basically. <laughs> or just, you know, I wanna do I wanna do what he's doing, um, as far as respecting the land and, and not letting things get out of control. So that was another motivator for starting small. So let's just um go off into particulars for a moment and talk about some of the crops that you have succeeded with. Like, what can you grow on Cortez Island? Okay, this is why I brought this, because I certainly forget. What you can grow is going to depend very much on the conditions of the ground where, where you're standing. Mm-hmm. Like, we, what grows in this valley, dif- what, what grows well in this valley differs from one side to the other. Yeah. Not hugely, but we've noticed that. And so from here to somewhere like uh, sandy south end soil or some rocky bluff by the sea or something like that, it's going to be very different or some peaty uh, bottom land. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to be too general. Even on the same farm, you have microbiomes. Even where... in the same field, you know, yeah. like our field, as you pass by and saw it, slopes down to the marsh. So if we were trying to grow garlic on that bottom end, it wouldn't do very well, but it likes the higher dryer. So we kind of rotate it in that higher dryer section of the field. So yeah, it's it, it totally depends. I mean, what we've made work here is like our, our main crops that we grow for market in the co-op are beets, carrots, lettuce... Uh, hakari, which is like a little Asian turnip, peas, parsley, shallots, tomatoes. And then we kind of have a, a range of other little crops that we grow for market to supplement the, you know, to fill out the table and to, to supplement what we already grow. But those, are, I'd say, are the main ones. So I'd you're selling so. at Friday Market mm-hmm. and, and then yeah. also at the co-op. Yeah. And what's... What's the sort of percentage of those two markets as far as your income? Is the co-op your staple major outlet or is it kind of 50-50? It's getting more 50-50. So the market, we're getting a bit better each year in figuring out what people want to buy and how much we can bring to market that will sell out and things like that. So I think last year we kind of topped out as to what we could bring and what, what, you know, we still had a bunch or two left of things at the end of the day. So yeah, unless the market expands and has more customers, which is possible, which is possible. Yeah. So uh, it's about 60, 40 co-op market. In our first year, the co-op was 100 percent of our market Yeah. because we didn't sell the, the farmer's market. That was part of our strategy of keeping things simple and focused and allowing us to concentrate on the farming. Having that day out of the week at the beginning would have been a big blow to our workflow in the week because we would have lost that day and we we're just our brains were so full of everything mm. we were trying to do. And we were trying to do too much. Like in retrospect, it's you know we were uh, micromanaging <laughs> the plants because we were new and wanted everything to go yeah, we, so well. Whereas now we know when we can leave things alone. We went better. down to the field every day to uncover the the kale seedlings and cover them up again in the yeah. evening, and they it was ridiculous. Yeah. But we, you know, within that 60-40, we only do 11 weeks of market a year. So we go to market 11 times, but we sell to the co-op between June and November. So it is a small chunk of time, but it is a big chunk of money for us, that market season. 
And speaking of the co-op, I know there are multiple farmers and market gardeners supplying the co-op. You guys must have some way of coordinating so that everybody doesn't grow frisee in the same season and nobody grows other lettuces. Uh, how does that work out? Well, Hazel is our go-to. She's the local grower contact person at the co-op, so everyone goes through her. And the co-op has kind of put these designations in place. There's primary producers and there's secondary producers. I'd say us and Linnea are the only two primary producers on the island. I could be wrong. I think there's maybe some primary producers for other specific vegetables like blueberries or other things that people bring in. But as far as, you know, a range of vegetables. And so we've kind of guaranteed that we are going to supply, let's say, the parsley for them for the season and a certain amount of lettuce and this and that. And so Hazel kind of has that to look at and then can say to other growers, oh, okay, there's room for this this week, you know, or that. It's definitely a big, I think, she's juggling a lot of balls with all the different people that want to bring stuff in throughout the season, and she does an amazing job. Um, but I think, you know, she can kind of count on us and Linnea bringing in a huge bulk of stuff compared to most people. And consistently. Consistently, yeah. And do you then talk to her in advance of the season about what you're going to grow? Like you're going to be the primary supplier for snap peas or something. And you're going to provide about this many snap peas over the course of a season? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll give her a spreadsheet, which has week to week how many bunches or bags or whatever unit it is they sell of it that we're aiming to sell each week to them. Being an ideal world, she knows that there's going to be sway in that depending on the season and the climate and all these different factors that can happen. So, But yeah, we, we give her our, our guesstimate of how much we're going to sell each week of each vegetable. And the co-op has detailed records of their produce sales going back as far as you want to look. So they're aware of how much they tend to sell of things every year. So it's actually a, was a great piece of information for us starting out. It's like, oh, look, the co-op sells this many like bunches of carrots every year. So there's a market for that many bunches of carrots if we can supply them. So do you then allocate a certain amount of your growing space to the Friday market and another area to the co-op or do you just say well for both markets we're going to need this many rows of beets yeah so it's exactly. more like it's week to week it all up. it's week to week what we how many bunches or units we'll need rather than separating it that way yeah so within each bed i should on june 15th when we're need 20 bunches of carrots for the co-op and 60 bunches for the market there should be those 80 bunches ready in in a bed. So does that mean your planting schedule works backwards from your marketing schedule? Yes. You know you need this many bunches of carrots by mid-June or early July. You know the germination and maturation time of carrots. Mm -hmm. Day, so days that, to maturation, they call it. Yeah. That dictates your planting schedule. Yeah. Then. And then the days to maturation also dictates our greenhouse schedules when those need to go in to then go out to the field and then be ready. So there's kind of Three stages if it's a greenhouse crop and two stages if it's uh, just straight in the ground, direct seeded. It's called farming on paper. It's what you do in January. Yeah, exactly. And, uh... and there's some amazing spreadsheets and programs out there, which I've discovered, which to kind of you put the numbers in and it does all this work for you mm -hmm. and does the, as long as you know the days to maturation, it will figure out those dates for you. And then once you have the date, you kind of just shift it to the Monday of the week so that you're trying to get everything done, everything lined up for that Monday each week. And if you start on the Monday, hopefully by Friday, everything will <laughs> have happened. Yeah. 
Well, there's definitely a takeaway lesson that I'm getting here for the aspiring market-oriented gardener or farmer is that meticulous record-keeping is very important. Yes, particularly the first few years because you need to keep quite good harvest records so that, you know, you can do all this careful planning, but it doesn't necessarily mean the crop is ready in that 50 days that the book said it was going to be or even the seed packet. And so if you actually keep track of when that carrot was ready or that lettuce, lettuce particularly because they bolt, mm-hmm. right? So you need to have the, the market ready for them when they're ready. So if you keep track of the varieties and when they're ready, then hopefully the next season you can have a much better idea. But this changes, right? Last summer was very cool. So <laughs> I think trying to compare last summer to this summer, it, it could be it could be quite different. It's hard to know. And I think this is also the new normal with the kind of climate fluctuations that we're seeing. It's you have to be a bit flexible with mm-hmm. with that. And my the way I kind of deal with that is every week with lettuce, I sow about six different varieties. And so I know that each week there should be some ready, you know, whether it's this one or that one. I have some wiggle room in there. Mm-hmm. Whereas the beginning, I was kind of sowing lettuce every three weeks and every two weeks. And then I figured, no, every week actually is what's a bit safer for, for that. I was going to ask that about whether um, there are ways in which you hedge your bets mm-hmm. for uh, climatic variation year on year. Do you just hope that this summer is going to be normal? Or do you actually plant a wider variety of crops, knowing that some will do better in drier conditions and some in wetter conditions? The variety is very important. It's like a safeguard against one crop not doing well as having a few different ones. And it's rare for a crop to to be a total disaster. Often it will be a disappointment. But even if it is a disaster, you usually see it coming. If you've been doing it for a few years, you may uh, be cold-hearted enough to just dig it in and plant something else. And that's it. You you know everything isn't going to go perfectly. You try to keep your eyes open to what is not going well and make changes. If it was just one crop and you're relying on it and it started to go wrong, that would be terrible. The problem with monoculture, agriculture, yeah. Yeah, and then each crop is different. So that's part of this whole getting better every year thing is figuring out how to hedge your bets with each crop and make that a little easier for yourself. And it's it's a big learning curve. Um, I think we're kind of finally getting there. But when you have like two or three or four or sometimes 10 varieties for lettuce within each crop, it's like almost 10 new vegetables to learn about when you're learning about each variety. So it's a, yeah, it's a big, a big learning curve. Do you test new crops or new varieties every year? Do you, do you have a sort of experimental section where you try out new stuff? Somewhat. Or are you yeah. sort of adopting good old faithfuls that you just plant every single year? It's nice to get to the point where we have some good old faithfuls and we're starting to get there with some crops. Um, other ones, I am like lettuce. I try a couple different varieties each year because I'm not quite there yet. Uh, Rebecca at the cafe, for example, said she would like some radicchio this year. And I said, okay, well, I haven't had a super lot of luck growing, you know, even just my backyard radicchio yet, but I'll put a test plot out there for you and see see how it goes and take it a bit more seriously. So I'm not guaranteeing her I'm going to be supplying her with the radicchio, but I'll see see how this year goes, and then maybe next summer I'll be able to supply you. It's a balance between ensuring you have a variety of things growing and for market and finding the things that you grow the best and are most productive and most profitable. Because if you only go for what's most productive and most profitable, you'll bore down to one or two crops and you'll be farming one or two crops. And if you go for variety and trying new things every year, you'll never get in the groove and you'll never find the the sweet spot of what grows really well 
and, and there's only so much space if you're growing stuff really well and you want to grow new things and something has to go mm -hmm. to make room and so or you get into eighth of an acre itis where you keep uh, <laughs> clearing a little more and a little more mm -hmm. yeah and then you end up having to get into machines and your style of farming will have to change to accommodate the machines and soon that you're doing something different than what you set out to do to what extent do you use machinery at this point with your third to a half of an acre? The story of machines for us is started out with a tractor plowing up the sod and a manure spreader spreading cow manure pulled behind a tractor by our neighbor Henry. And when you plow up even a quarter of an acre, it'll, it all of a sudden looks twice as big as it did when it was sitting in grass. <laughs> That was kind of a shocking moment. It's like, oh my goodness, what have we done? <laughs> this is <laughs> Look too at much. all this bare ground. Look at the bare soil. Yeah. We're going to have to weed that. And we did have to weed that. And after that, we continued, continued doing that. We planted a cover crop of fall rye, which had to be turned in by a plow because it's a tough cover crop. It, it doesn't want to incorporate into the soil. And we spread with the new spreader again. And after that, we decided that these machines are actually making more work for us. Maybe not quite more than they were saving, but they were making a lot of work. The well, what happened too is in our third season that it was a very wet spring, the wettest spring we'd experienced yet. And so we couldn't actually get the tractor into the field to plow until almost May, which was quite stressful because we had all these starts that were ready to go in the ground and we were just waiting on, on this tractor work being done and this fall rye being turned in which was already too late to turn in so and you plow in the rye and yeah. you have to wait for it to decompose and it doesn't yeah. for weeks and you can't plant your seedlings and so we figured okay well if we just if we actually move this into permanent beds then we can just be in control of you breaking can... down our cover crop by using black plastic so six weeks before we want that bed ready or even we plant clover we don't even need six weeks you need like two or three weeks we put the black plastic over we take it off, it's ready to go April second. There's not we're not reliant on this on this tractor coming in. So that was that was a big factor. And because yeah. our most of our farming is successional, we're doing this and then this and then this and then this over a period of months. We don't need a big swath of land ready all at once. That's just stressful. So yeah. We are now in control as to when each bed is ready. Yeah. Um, we changed our tactic from plowing the land all at once and fertilizing it all at once and having to deal with everything straight away and also driving heavy equipment on the ground mm -hmm. in the spring. Now, instead of driving the machinery on there, we prepare each bed one at a time, and that means we can have a few beds ready to go early, and we can even do it by hand. It's a lot of work, but you can do it if it's too wet to get in there with any with like a rototiller. So really the extent of our machinery use now is a walk behind rototiller to till in manure just to the topsoil. And a quad to move uh, the manure. Yeah, and a, and a quad which pulls a trailer full of manure, which I find is, you can drive it into in the pathways of the field. You don't have to drive on the beds. And the difference in the soil texture that we've found since we stopped driving tractors on the garden is so, it's so different now. And to compare it with our neighbor who farms in a different way, he farms with a tractor, drives his tractor on his garden a number of times a year and grows amazing crops, but the soil is hard. Mm -hmm. You sometimes can't stick a fork into parts of the garden. And where our garden every year, the soil gets lighter and easier to fork and easier to work. Another benefit is that we're not manuring the paths. So we're just manuring the beds and the paths 
stay pass <laughs> and manure free where they don't we don't need manure so that's kind of a, so it's more efficient use yeah, yeah of the manure, the manure yeah. and if we had to manure the garden with wheelbarrows we could like it would take a while and it would be laborsome but we could do that we could just truck the manure over there and dump mm -hmm. it under every bed by hand and because you're not doing it all at once it's not as bad as it would be yeah <laughs> you know you're doing one bit at a time four wheelbarrows per bed mm -hmm. it's not that bad and it allows, you to, it allows us to use our time, instead of having to block out chunks of time to do machine work or to do big jobs all at once, like, okay, like, there's a lot of work to do, but we're breaking it up into chunks and we're going to be able to do it bit by bit as we have time between other jobs. It sounds as if another benefit is that you then vary the type of work that you're doing through the season instead of... Well, I mean, if you have to plant an acre in potatoes all at once, that's days of stoop labor doing the mm -hmm. same thing hour after hour. But the way you're doing it, you get to mix up the tasks physically as well. It's a different kind of work from day to day. Yeah. Which is important for your body and for your brain because it gets tiring doing the same job. And that's one of the nice things about doing this sort of mixed farming for me is that it's different. It's not like the same job all the time. It's always hard work, but at least it's a different task each day. The, the thing with farming being, you get the enjoyment of being in control of what task you do at any time and the, a wide variety of different tasks. But the problem is you have 50 tasks to do <laughs> and only time for 10. And you have to choose which ones you do or which ones you do 10% of and then leap to do another thing. Do you find prioritizing is a big challenge for the small farmer? Yes, time management is a, is a big challenge, particularly... I don't want to say particularly for us, but we're trying to run this so that we don't have any employees and we're also doing full-time childcare for Gail, our son, and now a second one. So yeah, managing that time flow and uh, what is prioritized is tricky. I think I have a lot of lists and particularly as we get further and further into the season. I mean, you, I think that's why I said start on the Monday with the seeding and the the transplanting, because that is the thing that absolutely needs to get done. You know, if you're not, if the plants aren't going in the ground, if the seeds aren't going in the ground, then nothing grows. So you can spend all your time weeding or doing other jobs, but just aim to get those ones done early in the week. And then the rest of the stuff can hopefully happen as the week goes on. So how do you divide up the work of the farm between you, you know, as a working couple? There's, a, as you say, there's more things to do than there are hours in the day. I think we used to do, before we had Gail, when we both worked. Which was we, one year. <laughs> we, we would, yes, but still, yeah. it was a formative year. Yeah. We both worked mostly at the, at the same things because we didn't yet have specializations. But through that year, we came to find some tasks we each enjoy and some tasks don't enjoy. I get really bored of transplanting seedlings very quickly, whereas Anne seems to be able to go and do that for a very long time and finds it at least somewhat enjoyable. So if, if there's some transplanting to do, it's, I think it's going to be Anne's uh, first go at that. And other things I don't mind doing, like shoveling a lot of manure. I'll do that all morning and all afternoon. It's satisfying and I can do it. So that's my job. So I think we've just naturally split into tasks that we're either good at or enjoy. Or, But I mean, there are some jobs that are quite tedious, like thinning carrots and beets. I really don't like doing it and I'm not very good at it. Sam's about three times faster at it than I am. And you don't seem to don't mind, mind it, it as yeah. much. So it's, you know, it's not all about tedium necessarily. You find transplanting tedium, yeah. I find thinning. And, and thinning and transplanting aren't incredibly different jobs. No. They both in involve sitting in a pathway and mm -hmm. either putting things in or taking things out of the ground. Mm -hmm. But for me, I just don't like transplanting. I don't like thinning. 
And then Sam's much more mechanically and building minded than I am. So if there's any fencing repairs or machinery repairs or any of that kind of stuff, it's pretty much a no-brainer that Sam's going to do that stuff. Whereas all the garden planning and spreadsheets and what's happening throughout the week all is my job. And I quite enjoy getting nerdy about that kind of stuff. So that works out well for us. And then on harvest day, we've really narrowed it down to very specific crops. Like Sam is, does carrots and beets and hackerai. And I don't know, he's got very specific things that he harvests. I have specific things that are that I harvest. And we've all, both got quite good at our harvesting. And if we ever have to switch for some reason, mm-hmm. it happens about twice as slow. Yeah. <laughs> With questions like, would you take this one? I don't know. <laughs> you know it's Yeah, we, we've really narrowed it down to... We've become quite uh, specialized in our work, which is great. It's super efficient, you know, to have our jobs laid it's out. And there's no questions. Not it's like, who's getting the carrots? Like, oh, I don't know. Like, we know who's doing what on a given yeah. day. So that's it's, helpful. It's, it's nice to be able to, you know, relax and discuss everything and decide who's going to do what job and feels like doing what. But at the same time, there's a lot of work to get done. And having to talk about and decide on everything, it wastes so much time. Whereas just falling into a groove of this is your job, this is my job and you, it's your responsibility and this is my responsibility, it takes 50% off of the brain of the other person. Because mm-hmm. if you don't know who's going to do what job, you both have to think about every job, talk about it, and then remember that this time it's my job to go turn the sprinklers off or whatever today. Yeah, Sam is all irrigation whereas, as well. <laughs> whereas Anne doesn't ever have to wonder, maybe I should go turn the sprinklers on or off. She knows that that's mm-hmm. my job. I'm mm-hmm. going to go do that every day, all, all summer, yeah. until the sprinklers get put away. And you know, I know that if there's seeding that needs to get done and has the spreadsheets and knows when it's going to happen. And if she needs any help, she'll ask. Mm-hmm. So you can trust each other to get the jobs done that are yours. Yeah. And I think that trust took a couple of years, probably particularly for my end, because I'd done a lot more growing than Sam had. You know, I wanted to make sure that he was doing it right. <laughs> you know, I was probably micromanaging him a bit in the first year or two. But now that we are very confident with what we're doing, and, and uh, I know Sam knows just as much as I do now, so it's great. And I have a different style. My transplanting, when yeah. I do it, might be a bit more rough and ready, yeah. and yours might be a little more careful. But in the end, you see the plants grow just yeah. the same. So it's okay to have a different style at a job, even if one person is more apt to it. And I was going to return to that, because I think that's an interesting thing for people to know. You were talking about harvesting, and I think... It's an important point that people don't often think of, that harvesting is actually a skill. Mm-hmm. And that each crop, maybe you can um, go into a little detail on that for me, like how different crops require different harvesting techniques, mm-hmm. and you have to learn how to do it. Can you give some examples of that? Well, things that come to my mind are just things as simple as you've grown, you've seeded the carrots, you've weeded the carrots, you've thinned the carrots, the carrots are ready for their full size, they're beautiful. And if you sent someone down there who wasn't experienced, they might just start trying to pull the carrots up by the tops and they break the tops off half of them and they break the and the, the tips come off another bunch of them and you end up losing 50% of your carrot crop that you already grew, that you put all the work into. And on the last hurdle, like you actually ruin them because you break them and stuff like that. You just have to learn how do you get carrots out of the ground. And we sell our carrots them. with their tops on for more money, right? So the tops need to be it's on. It's <laughs> an indicator of freshness and it's, yeah. a, it's a farmer's market thing. And I mean, a broken in half carrot, nobody really wants that. I mean, you can still eat it, but it's not gonna, it's gonna be the bunch that doesn't sell. So stuff like that, it's, you can ruin your, all your work at the last step just by being uncareful at harvest time. 
And then on the other side, that, like okay. lettuce, for example, there's recognizing when a certain variety of lettuce is ready and when it's on the edge of bolting. You know, it's it's a really fine line with butter lettuces. They don't. There's not much margin for error there. They will bolt within a two or three day period. Whereas I know my romains, if they've started to head up, okay, I've probably got another week and they'll keep heading up before they're going to bolt. So just knowing which ones to pull out and which ones to leave is is a fine art. I mean, some some of our crops are a bit easier, like the kale and parsley. We bunch them, so it's just pick, 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 bunch. But although it's not entirely true, because if you true. if you got a whole patch of kale and you're picking for bunching the kale, mm -hmm. and someone might like strip, like almost completely strip one plant and like leave big leaves on others, and those big leaves are sucking the energy from that plant mm -hmm. and, and and not getting any more marketable, and that plant you stripped all the leaves off is a struggling. It's true. And uh, neither plant is going to grow kale for next week. So. so you're having to balance the flavor mm. of the vegetable and the cosmetics of the vegetable, which uh, determines how likely mm -hmm. people are to buy it. And then also the health of the plant. Yes, the long-term health, because if you're, especially in plants that you aren't harvesting once and selling and people eat and, you know, onto the next one, the ones that grow all year and keep growing leaves particularly, those need to stay healthy for the whole season if you want to keep producing from the same bed. And then there's the element of efficiency where we do a lot of bunching and so we have invested in really good elastic bands because you don't want them breaking when you're down there and we bring you know you need 20 bunches you bring 22 elastic bands in case there is breakage you have them ready to go and you you know count things out before you get down there so you're now counting each bunch standing like, in the rain counting elastic bands and, yeah. in the cold so yeah, there's all these little efficiencies that you kind of learn over time, or how many bunches of carrots fit into a bin, so how many bins you need if you're getting 50 bunches of carrots, and yeah. just, yeah. And it comes down to, it's like anything that people do, you're moving your body, and it becomes an art form of moving your body the least amount to do the job. You're not wasting movement, you're not bending over more than you need to, you're not making yourself uncomfortable. You're not or, backtracking. <laughs> you're not going back yeah. over things you've done before. I mean, it's very simple, but you wouldn't people wouldn't necessarily think of it being like that, right? It's But everything is the same. But I think that those little things are what made us much more efficient. It seems we have much more time each year, and yet we make more money. And it's like, huh, how is that possible? It's all these little things that and we're that, just figuring that, and out. And that's yeah. my view of my angle on efficiency. You know, we could buy a $10,000 uh, machine, which would have all these gizmo attachments and make things faster. Like I could prep the ground faster. I could like, whatever, it could weed things and I'll save some time, but I would rather work with my body as efficiently as possible in those and, and gain those half a second, one second, five second, and over the year it adds up to hours and hours and hours of time saved. Yeah, and I mean, I'd prefer to be efficient like that than yeah. efficient like using tools and machinery to do jobs faster. And we haven't even talked about weeding, you know, we spent a lot of time weeding throughout the season and we have specific hoes that we use for, for different beds and keeping our hose very sharp and knowing when to hoe a bed is really key when the plant is very little, you know, is when you can kill it very easily, where if you're hoeing bigger weeds, it's like they're just going to come back. They're not going to be disrupted enough to die. So it's recognizing when a bed is ready to be weeded is huge and what, what hoe to use, which tool. It sounds to me a lot like um, a lot of what you're describing is the acquisition of deep local knowledge. Hmm. The particular cultivars you're growing, the particular soil you're working with, you learn more and more about it with the, each season. The weeds that grow there, mm -hmm. and it's actually kind of fun to go to other people's gardens. Oh, you've got that weed. It's different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What grows there? And you get to know, like, oh, you know, that those weeds are growing, but I know because I've done it for a few years, those weeds aren't going to be 
ready to go to seed before I've harvested that whole bed of beets. And so I'm not going to worry about it. I could spend like hours killing all those weeds with a hoe. But if I know that by next week, all those beets will be out, the bed will be moving on to something else. That would have been a waste of time. Yeah, we and, can kill those weeds with black plastic. and Or at least hoe them without having to hoe around every beet. Yeah. So yeah, this is the knowledge that comes with experience mm -hmm. of the land you're working with and the, the organisms you're working with. Now, I know there's two very common misconceptions about market gardening or small market farming. And one is that, oh, it's absolutely miserable. You have to work 14 hours a day and you never get a break. And what a, what a horrible job farming is. Who would ever want to do it? Mm -hmm. And then another one that I hear occasionally is sort of, um, oh, well, you just mulch deeply and it's hardly any labor and your crops <laughs> just grow themselves. What a, what a sweet way and easy way to make a living. People, just as a reality check. People like, do both. <laughs> about how many hours a day do you think people should expect to actually be, be physically working on their farm stuff? And then how many additional hours are there in terms of planning, record keeping, and that sort of thing? That's a very difficult question to answer yeah. meaningfully. Well, it's very Most, seasonal. Mostly because yeah. of the seasonality, because an answer that's accurate in June would be insane for the year round. But, you know, in, in this time of year, it's sometimes zero hours a day, really, on the farm. But mm -hmm. We do aim to shut down operations mid to end October and have that October, November, December just completely off from farming that well, we don't actually... This is like the last two years we've kind of managed this. We're not thinking about it or doing it or... The, the food preserving and other yeah. like home... Homesteading. Home work. type things. It's not included Using that. the produce of our seasons. Yeah. Uh, farming is still goes on, but the actual marketing of the crops and stuff. And selling of the crops. Whereas January starts with seed order and garden planning. February, I mean, is... Once I get the seed order in, it's more or less off. I do I do start some seedlings and things in February, and as soon as I start the first ones, they do require tending every day, you know, so that that's kind of something. But that tending is 15 minutes a morning, and then, you know, that builds up through March and April as more things are getting ready to be transplanted in the field. We start in April with the transplanting and, and the bed prep in March. So, I don't know, it slowly builds. It is really hard to put a meaningful, especially as we're caretaking taking care of our son full-time as well a lot of that is let's go down to the field with gail and how long will he, he might last an hour and then one of us has to take him away and another person stays and it's it's very fluid in in that way so yeah we've never seen to actually track the hours that we work closely it's more done by feel like we're working too much or <laughs> maybe i'm not working enough so is there a sort of a crazy season where you feel yeah. like it's taking all july august september hours? Right. It's, it's non-stop and it's unrelenting. And, and the plants won't stop growing. As soon as we start having, as soon as we start harvesting, right, that's when things get crazy. Because up until mm -hmm. then, we're tending, 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 weeding, 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 and then one, two, three days a week is taken up with harvest. And so you, those hours get taken away from the tending and the weeding and the transplanting and the other stuff that still needs to happen. So that's when the balance really starts to get difficult. And in those days, I don't know, what, six hours a day each, eight hours a day each? Yeah. Someone's I mean, tending gale, so it's not, exactly, we can't and, both be working eight hours a day And I'll take each. a break in the middle of the day because mm -hmm. the sun is unbearable for me to work in. Mm -hmm. In the middle of the summer, it's not worth it. Like those two hours, I'll get as much done as I would in 15 minutes in the shade. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather just wait and, and do it later for me. But rather than how many hours a day we have to work, I would think about it more as how many days do you not have to think about farming or do it 
or do something because even on the day that you only do uh, 20 minutes of work on your farm if that isn't what needs to be done you can't be anywhere else you have to be there mm -hmm. and uh, if you have to do it every day you can't go away you're there even caring for plants we have to uh, open and close, open the, green and close the greenhouses <laughs> yeah. water them check to see if seedlings have sprouted and move them and then comes the transplanting and the watering and the weeding and and although we might not work on the farm for many hours in this you know this time of year we have to be here we can't go on vacation we can't really like you know can't have a full-time other job even though you aren't working full-time at the farm you can't really have another job because you have to be around so although you might not work all your hours of every day on it it is always there as the thing that you have to be doing yes. and it takes up your whole life that being said we are about to go away <laughs> for three weeks to have a baby and our lovely farm community is going to tend to the things that yes. need tended for during this you... special time of, of when we need a break so, so yeah. it is possible but, but it's not you, normal but you do also get your winter sabbatical as yeah. you said where you you basically shut the farm down put it to bed yeah, mostly. Which gives us the energy to get back into it when the seed catalogs arrive again <laughs> and be excited about it. So far, you know, we haven't felt that we haven't burnt out yet. We're not feeling like, oh, we need to take a year off, which we hear a lot of young farmers get to that stage of around six or seven years. They're like, oof, this is, this is a lot. So Yeah, it's a lot of work and it's all consuming and it's hard to do anything else when you're trying to do any sort of farming really it's it's hard to do other things with your life there's no summer vacation i was going to say that's something that people should understand who are yeah. thinking about getting into it is you will not get summer vacation you might get a winter vacation mm -hmm. yeah but we try we try and get away at the end of september for a couple of weeks somewhere or a week 10 days just just vancouver island somewhere where we haven't been yet I think the, the thing that we've both struggled with is when we're working we're working very hard and so much gets done and both me and Anne feel like we're doing most of the work and so it's easy coming to, to realize that that's impossible we can't both be doing most of the work uh, that we both must be doing a lot appreciating that appreciating each other, each other. <laughs> it's hard because i think sometimes we just both feel underappreciated it's like ooh, when you're running your own business it's tempting to do everything perfectly and to you know well, if i did this this isn't this and then that would get done and then my business would be perfect you know and it's like no there's never going to be a perfect farm run business there's always going to be weeds and there's always going to be more stuff to do so take sunday off you know take a day off a week okay so the wrap-up question which is about what advice you would have for people who are sort of excited about local food and excited about the possibility of farming, thinking that maybe they could do this, you know, from your six seasons of doing this successfully, what would be some of the advice or tips that you would offer? Are we talking on Cortez or in general? Well, both. Okay. I mean, but I think on Cortez specifically is of, of most interest to listeners. Mm -hmm. Don't all talk at once. <laughs> Shall we give them the secrets? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or would you then have to kill me? <laughs> We've already given away a lot of secrets. <laughs> it's it's hard to say on Cortez. I think there is room for more growers on Cortez. Which is evidenced by the amount of food that people eat on the island mm -hmm. and uh, how much of it is supplied by local, <laughs> local growers. We, uh, local growers supply the co-op with, what's the percentage? 15%. Yeah, of their food. Which and the rest is, comes on trucks. And the rest has to come onto the island. And that figure of 15% is really high compared to other similar mm -hmm. co-ops around the country. Mm -hmm. Other co-ops apparently aim for 3 or 5% as their goal. 10. 10, yeah. pardon me. Mm -hmm. 
but they're not there. <laughs> um, no, and Cortez is already doing great. And the difference between that and the total amount of food sold even just at the co-op is it's all room for people to step in there. Is it possible to grow that much food on the land available on Cortez? I don't really know. I'd guess probably not. People like to eat a lot of food, they like variety, and it's impossible to provide that variety here all year round because of our climate and the types of soil that we have and that sort of thing. And I feel like some of the gaps at the co-op from what I've seen with the paperwork they send out each year at the local grower meeting is some of the crops that are a bit harder to grow now, kind of your broccoli and cauliflower and or things that are maybe not as profitable like onions or growing potatoes on a larger scale where you're selling them by the pound to the co-op or celery which needs a lot of water like there's for me when i see the crops that there that have the gaps there seems to be some reasons for those at least for us but that being said as far as like microgreens and salad mix and doing that kind of on shoulder seasons i think there's a big opportunity there we don't like bagging things so we've kind of stayed away from that side of it uh, we're trying to use as little plastic as possible, but you know. But there's room for people to innovate those things. Right? Yes. If people want to focus on extending their seasons, growing in the, the, the shoulder season, or mm -hmm. crops that require some like new techniques that no one's come up with yet to grow efficiently, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. I think as far as thing. selling to the co-op and the main crops that exist, there's a there's a bit of room, but maybe not a huge amount of room. Selling to the co-op with maybe some other crops that need a bit more innovation, there's definitely room. Selling things not to the co-op, like one, one avenue we think is ripe for the taking is the Gorge Harbor Market. There's no grower who goes there and sells vegetables. But yeah. as far as we know. So you guys I... only do the Friday market, you don't do the Saturday market? No, no we haven't found the time for that yet. Mm. It would be the next day after the Friday market for us, and we're just two people and we're knackered. haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> and our child is also knackered. <laughs> and the sales would be smaller. There's lower attendance. It would be developing, yeah, it would be developing a, a market there mm -hmm. rather than. But know, I think it's a big opportunity. There's a lot of boaters with a lot of money who want vegetables. I think you'd be catering to them and be kind of cucumbers, tomatoes. Uh, peppers, like stuff that you, they could take and eat. I don't think a bunch of beets would be a big seller at that market, for example. And people are, you know, people are rightly complaining that it's hard to get food onto the island in mm -hmm. the summer because uh, it is mm -hmm. with the ferries. And so any food that is grown on the island has immediate advantage of already being here mm -hmm. and being there when maybe it's going to be tough. You know, possibly hollyhock, maybe the gorge store and restaurant. If the Cove restaurant's getting up and running again. They could be another avenue. I think there is opportunities to be had. And we have we did sell a lot wider, actually, to many more different places in our first two years. And now we've narrowed right down to the co-op and the market because that maxes us out. And that's great. You know, it's we don't have to communicate with more places and or, do any more organizing than that. But those places exist. And I think and there they is. Need, and they need food. And they need food. Yeah. So it's just a matter of setting up a relationship with those other places. And probably the co-op will, will have some room as well, I'm sure. Do you think we've exhausted these species that are easily growable? Are there other niches well, that you have Well, I think there's yet? more of a market for, this, for those crops. But it's just at the time when things grow the best here in this climate, like people are producing about most of what we need. But in the other times of years, that drops off. So there could be more... There is more room, maybe not at the, the peak of the growing season, but generally throughout the year. Squash is a big one too. I mean, we grow a couple of beds of squash, but we, we sell out of our squash by January, say, and the 
and that's something that stores really well. So people could be growing five beds of squash and selling it through February, March, April, May, June. You know, like the co-op will keep buying squash through those months. We just don't have it to sell to them anymore. So that's one, for example. Um, if you have the storage space, right? You need, you need to put it somewhere <laughs> while dry. you're selling it on. Somewhere dry where it's curing, yeah. But not freezing. But not freezing, yeah. Whereas tomatoes is a tough one, right? Because everyone has their tomatoes at the same time of year and everyone sells them and then it's done. And I don't know if someone can find a way to keep growing really great tomatoes into October, November, December, then great. Then, you know, you would definitely be able to sell them. It's just figuring out those <laughs> outside of season kind of tricks. You touched on a couple of things earlier, like one of your earliest statements was not starting out too big. Mm-hmm. Is that something you'd say to someone who was interested in doing this, like don't get too ambitious right away? I think that's one of the most key pieces of advice that I would give to anybody starting out is don't overreach. Learn what your strengths are and what you want to do through experience and give yourself that experience by giving yourself a break when you start out and letting yourself, you know, get through a year or two without burning out and giving up. And take the advice of the people who are already on the land. Like if you're sharing, you know, if you're leasing land from someone who has done some farming and gardening there over a period of years, you can kind of be tempting just to plow ahead and be like, no, I know what I'm doing and I've got my ideas. I've read a few books and I've got an idea. But, you know, Henry's actually, he's taught us a lot. (laughs) Not actually, you know, of course, he's taught us a lot. And some of the things he's taught us are go against the advice that you would read in a lot of Mm -hmm. books uh, and other experts. Well, that's yeah. interesting. Is there an example of that you can think of where local knowledge is um, actually contradicts the received opinion? Well, just for example, I mean, the fluffy soil thing and not compacting your soil. I mean, his soil is quite compacted, yet things grow amazingly. So that was a lesson to us of being like, when okay, our, when this is fi- working. <laughs> when our field was full of fluffy mm-hmm. soil mm-hmm. and yet the plants were all dying mm-hmm. and we'd look over at Henry's, <laughs> Henry's land, which he drives the tractor on and, work and the, all the time. And yeah, when you stick a fork in, you can't uh, you can't get it in more than a couple of inches in some spots. And yet, those spots were growing. So that was a bit of a food. challenge to the it religion was, of double digging. Mm-hmm. It was hard to take at the time. But a great learning experience. And it was like, you kind of have to look at see what's working in the area where you're growing with your neighbors. And if people want to take on employees one day, I'd say maybe do it for yourselves for a year and figure out what your strengths are before trying to pass that knowledge on to someone else. Yeah, I think uh, advice for beginner farmers is is to look at what doesn't work a lot of the time, right? And, and what's getting farmers into trouble on the other end of the scale is huge machinery costs, damage to the soil done by machines and pesticides, that sort of a thing. And the, the ongoing chaining of farmers to seed companies through mm-hmm. genetically modified and other patented sort of seeds and pesticides and you know, look at that and just, you know, even if that's got nothing to do with what you're planning to do, just try to do the opposite. Don't get you know, avoid, that. avoid the same traps that those people fell for when they were starting out. You know, they didn't start out with a, a million acres and a huge machines all over the place and stuff like that. But the ideas that got us all there were there at the beginning. Try to see those and come up with a different solution to the same problems, because otherwise we'll all just end up in the same place. Is this something you feel like this is a good life. This is how you'd like to go on living on Cortez, being farmers. There's no plan B at this stage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we've we found this farm here at Blue Jay. We feel lucky to have arrived here into a, a lovely house and a piece of land that's really affordable. It's a lovely place to raise kids. That's kind of our focus right now is having a second baby and 
having a place where they can grow up and be healthy and have amazing food and neighbors that love them. And so, yeah, it's it's, it's hard to think of any reasons we'd want to leave. And we're making money. We're putting a bit of money in the bank each year. And that's that's awesome, having a few months off a year and doing a job that, that fulfills us. So. I would think it must be worth a lot to be able to say to yourself that you're making your living in a way that actually makes the world better, not worse. Before we ever came to trying out farming for ourselves, that was one of the things we were talking about. And I always liked being a bicycle mechanic because although there's things with any industry, you know, they're mining metals and making bicycles and rubber tires and stuff, nothing's uh, without its impact. It's really on the scale of things that people uh, can do with their lives. It's, it's not a bad thing, a field to work in. People are outside, you know, enjoying nature on their bikes, and it's a relatively sustainable technology. And people what have about fun. farming? And yeah, and so it's like, yeah, farming, I could do that instead. That's also a good one. Hey, this is Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and you have been listening to Cortez Currents. This Saturday afternoon show is rebroadcast on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and is also available in podcast form at cortezradio.ca. Once again, the opinions and views heard on this show are those of the host and guests and are not endorsed by Cortez Community Radio Society. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. Thanks for listening.